Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So hello, this is Colin. Um, Today's show, I think, is occasioned largely because of the medical crisis the whole country is in, and maybe a little bit occasioned by my own life, where two of the people I care about most in the world are requiring a lot of pretty intensive medical care. And when that happens, whether it's because of the COVID pandemic or because of some other non-COVID but very urgent reason, you start realizing how completely dependent we are on nurses, how how much the world kind of would fall apart without nurses, uh, and how much vital information they possess, how much energy for helping they possess, uh, and how much good they can do, how much they can be the difference between a really good night and a really bad night, a really good day and a really bad day. Quite frequently, the difference between those two extremes is a nurse. So we wanted to spend some time talking about that, but also talking about the kinds of inner impulses that cause somebody to choose a profession where the rewards are big, but the the the, the toll that it takes, the taxing aspect of this job uh, is enormous. A lot of people wouldn't choose it. We're going to begin by talking to two people who did uh, and who have and who are. Uh, we'll be talking to Tracy Gordon Fox, a former journalist for the Hartford Current. I've known her for, for a really long time. We were there on the staff of the Current together for many years. She's currently a staff nurse on the general surgery floor at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Also uh, at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center is Kelly Chevalier, uh, who is the Interim Director of Emergency Services Services there at Trinity Health of New England's St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. So, And then a little bit later, we'll be talking about people who've studied this whole question uh, of altruism, uh, of why people... Uh, why some people decide uh, that what they really are put here on earth to do is to help other people. Um, all right. So uh, you, Tracy, uh, we've actually been in touch quite a bit lately for different reasons. Uh, but uh, I think it's important for people to hear your story. So when we were at the Hartford Current, uh, you were actually already somebody who was unafraid of difficult and sometimes risky assignments. You'd chosen the job uh, of a crime and justice reporter. This puts you on the scene of all kinds of things that people uh, would run away from. But you should say a little bit more about that. Right. Hi, Colin. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, when I was a police reporter, I think um, a lot of times I felt like I was the only one on the scene who wasn't helping. And, um, you know, in an active way, even though I might have been helping by writing about the story uh, afterwards. Um, And so uh, little by little, um, there were little seeds planted in my brain that maybe I wanted to do something else. And um, one of them was um, when I wrote a story in 2002 about uh, heroin addicts in Willimantic, there was uh, three um, drug addicted individuals we were following and um one of them died in the course of our reporting and um the the girlfriend of the gentleman who died got very sick um afterwards and i 
didn't want to let her die, even though if I was being true to journalism and let the story flow, I wouldn't have gotten involved. But hmm. I felt it was more important that we take her to the hospital. So uh, we took her to the hospital and um, she was basically going septic from a, a infection from a dirty needle. And um, we, we, she credited us later with saving her life. And that was a better feeling than any front page story I'd ever written. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the seeds that got me thinking that maybe I was in the wrong field. And then, as you know, um, journalism didn't actually go in a good direction. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started thinking about other things to do. And um, pretty much from 2007 to 2008, um, I had surgery. My mom got sick with cancer. My dad went into kidney failure. And my older daughter had to be uh, hospitalized for a week with something that turned out to be gallbladder disease. But I was thrown into nursing situations a lot. And I started thinking, um, well, maybe that's something I would like to do. It wasn't, didn't your, da- didn't your daughter kind of flat out say that to you, that you should be a nurse? She did because, um, so she was at CCMC and um, she at the time was 16 and was thinking about becoming a nurse. So I said, well, ask some of the nurses, like, how do they like their job? And they were going, oh, well, you know, it's three days a week. Um, I, f- I feel so great at the end of the day. I mean, I'm, I'm helping people. And um, and, I, and I said, well, that sounds like a great job. And my, my daughter, Sarah, looked at me and she said, mom, um, you know, maybe you should be a nurse. You've always taken care of us. You're compassionate. And um, but she later admitted, though, that that maybe she maybe she had had a lot of narcotics in her when she said that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that is another little seed that happened. And um, we happened to be at CCMC and, you know, Connecticut Children's and uh, right across the street, you know, Lifestar was was taking off and landing. And I I um, as I was staying with her overnight, I kind of wondered what would it be like to be on that side? And mm. not on the side that just reported on it, but the side that was actually helping. All right, so uh, we're going to come back to that in a second. I should say, by way of context, that uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this episode, kind of moved in the opposite direction. She has had been a, a nurse for her career, and she uh, moved towards journalism. So you kind of passed each other uh, going in opposite directions uh, on that way. Uh, but Kelly, you also did a career change to get where you are right now. Uh, tell us about that. Where were you? And then uh, why did you become a nurse? That That's absolutely true. So I think it's so fascinating that everybody has a story. You know, I love to listen to people's stories. Um, I started out, I I turned 18 in basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. Um, First time I was ever away from home, scared kid, had no idea really what I wanted to do. Um, So, you know, and and when I had a kind of a tumultuous childhood, I wasn't the nicest kid, greatest kid. I gave my mother a run for her money, that's for sure. And uh, I needed that direction. So the military was a great fit for me at that time. Um, I didn't, healthcare was something I loved. I loved helping to take care of people, but I never thought I'd be smart enough to be a nurse. Um, Lo and behold, a few years later, I'm married now. I met my husband in the military and uh, that we've been together now for 33 years. And I had a daughter who was born with 
um, a form of muscular dystrophy. She had mitochondrial disease. And I quickly was immersed in healthcare in a way that no mother ever wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, the nurses in the NICU, um, where Caitlin was for three months, actually, they were so awe-inspiring. They were so motivating. And I just, I couldn't believe how brilliant they were and how caring and compassionate they were. And they really are the motivation that I needed to go back to school. So I went, actually went back to school with three little kids Hmm. and graduated with my undergraduate in nursing in 1999. And, uh, worked on a med surge unit for a year and have been in the emergency department ever since. You know, it's funny uh, when you tell that story, Kelly, because uh, somebody that you might occasionally pass in the halls there, you and Tracy, uh, is a guy named Hugh Blumenfeld, who uh, was was and is a musician, uh, had a, a premature baby uh, and was just similarly transfixed by the experience and transformed by the experience. I remember him coming on my show and he'd written a little song about the babies who go beep, beep, beep. And it was this very lovely uh, and endearing little song. And the next thing I knew, he was going to medical school. So NICU has has a way uh, of getting your attention about sort of what's possible. Okay, so I want to ask both of you, and I'll come back to you now, Tracy. I mean, I, I think you know, if you had asked a person in 2019 about nurses, they would probably say, well, that's hard work. And, uh, you know, they do really hard work and they do really good things. And that's, you know, God bless them or something. But there's a way in which during the pandemic, I think nurses have been elevated a little bit more in people's consciousness, uh, maybe even to hero status. So uh, how, how do you feel about that? Is that, uh, I don't know, is that something you welcome? Well, I, I mean, I never saw myself as a hero. Um, as a nurse, you are someone who helps, you ease pain, um, you're there for the patient. Um, when I was uh, first a nurse at St. Francis and they, they have a pretty long training program, we had a guy come in who, um, he was a, a tragic accident victim and he was blinded in the accident. And he talked to all us new nurses and he said that the one thing he remembered when he first got into that accident is, um, is, is one of the staff members who was, I don't even think she was a nurse yet, but she held his hand and said, I'm here. And that's one of the things we do is, um, you know, make sure the patient knows that, that we are here for them. I don't consider it myself a hero. I think that we're nurses and pandemics are always possible. And we know that one comes around every hundred years. So we were due for one and I'm not making light of it. This has been a very, very challenging um, situation for us to work through. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that people who know nurses will, will, will be able to tell you is, is we know how to adapt. And I think that um, we adapted as well as we could in the situation. And um, I've seen, you know, my colleagues are just so strong and amazing that that kind of helps you to come in every day and do what you have to do. Let me press you on that a little bit too. I just know from your writing and from our conversations and stuff that this this has put a, a lot of emotional stress on you. This has put, I mean, I think physical stress and emotional stress uh, of a type which even as a seasoned nurse, uh, I don't think you'd seen before. So uh, how yeah. how have you coped with that? 
Well, so um, when when so my floor, my surgery floor was uh, a COVID unit for about uh, two and a half, three months, and um, we we are not used to people dying like that on our floor because basically people come to our floor, and and we put them back together from traumas or you know big surgeries and they and they get better, mostly, or they go to a nursing home or something. Um, here, people were, were dying every day and emotionally that was extremely challenging. They, they couldn't have their families with them. So we were their person often who was, you know, there when they took their last breath or around that time. Um, but what stressed me out the most, um, was when suddenly people started saying it was a hoax. And then um, when I saw that on social media or even in some um, talk groups in my hometown, I, I just became angry. Mm -hmm. And how can you say it's a hoax? I know what I'm seeing firsthand. And um, so that anger and sadness that you carry with you is, is, is not good for you. So I did a couple of things. Um, St. Francis, uh, I think through Trinity was offering um, this program called CareBridge where we could call a counselor if we needed to, like for free, 24-7. And I used that a couple of times because I just needed to talk talk to somebody who would understand what I was feeling. And then um, I did some guided meditation, which anybody who knows me is it's kind of funny because I'm like pretty like hyper, you know, um, very non-meditative person, it would seem. But uh, the, it actually, the meditation helps because it controls your breathing and controls your thoughts a little bit. And um, so both those things, um, I think, helped me through that really difficult time because at home I was feeling, you know, angry and sad a lot. I think I probably cried every day during that time when, you know, when our floor was, was a COVID floor. So Kelly, you have to worry not only about those that kind of emotional burnout in yourself, uh, but uh, other nurses, uh, I, I would assume, who are under your supervision. So can you say a little bit more? I mean, you're listening to Tracy. I'm, I'm guessing nothing she's saying is terribly surprising or new to you. But how, I don't know, first of all, how do you monitor for it? Well, you know, we, particularly in the emergency department, we are in the front line. So, you know, we're, we're as close to the street as you can get. And most of the patients that come into this hospital come in through the ED. Um, it's the pandemic's changed. Um, in the very beginning, there was a lot of unknown uncertainty and a lot of fear. Um, we as a leadership group, me, the um, medical director, uh, at the time, the, the person whose position I'm in now, who's currently our chief nurse of the hospital, spent a lot of time talking to the staff, sharing information, giving them as much information as we could so that we had them feeling as if they they had the tools that they needed to maintain resiliency throughout this process. Um, but it was terrifying. You know, we were fighting an invisible enemy, you know, and, and I think some of my military background did help me as far as, you know, being as organized as possible, being, you know, being a mom also has helped me. You know, these are, you know, nurses that are young in their career. This is the first time anybody has gone through anything like this. I mean, I've lived through the SARS scare and the, 
you know, the swine flu, you know, pandemic that we had, all these, these like little bumps in the road. And then now all of a sudden we're going up this mountain. Um, and I'll tell you, when I went home, I have elderly parents that live with us and I was getting undressed in the garage and coming into the house, not wearing anything that I wore in the hospital, you know, going right into the shower and, you know, that degree of um, anxiety day in and day out, you know, I would take my shower, decompress, wash the day off of me and just spend a little time, quiet time with just me. And before I could really face the anxiety and fears of my family um, on top of managing to keep the staff as grounded as possible so that we can maintain that degree of resiliency throughout this pandemic. So it's, it's exhausting, you know, um, but generally, you know, the, the fact that we as leaders can have such a powerful influence on the career of a, a less experienced, more novice nurse is a huge responsibility and one that we take very, very seriously. So, you know, being there for them, ensuring that they had appropriate PPE, ensuring that they had all the tools that they needed to go to battle every day was was what we did and what we continue to do. And I'm going to ask both of you the same question, and, and it's maybe not one that we necessarily prepared you for, but I think it's an important one, and, and uh, you know, um, I hope you can help us out with this. How can we help you, Tracy? How can people are listening to the show right now, and they're sort of hearing and being reminded of what nurses are going through? What It's hard enough to be a nurse, I think, on a daily basis in a normal year. Here you guys are in the middle of a pandemic. It's an extraordinarily difficult time for everybody. Um what is there something that we should know uh, that about your job and your life that that you want us to know, or is there something we can do that that would help if you could get us to change our behavior somehow? Would well, you have us do? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely, Colin. If people would just follow the CDC guidelines in terms of mask wearing, washing their hands, and social distancing in not exposing more people to this disease, then it would help us have less COVID patients, which would ultimately help everyone. And um, and I think that when people hear people who say it's a hoax or, oh, it's not that bad, then they should challenge them and say, no, it is that bad. And, and it, it is not a hoax and it's real because w- more than 400,000 people have died from it. And I feel passionately that that's what we need people to do right now. We need to people to recognize that this is not life as normal. This is, it's a public health crisis. It's a pandemic. So everybody has to kind of just realize that they might not be able to live their lives as they're used to and protect the protect their elderly relatives so they're not you know coming in and getting very sick but as we've seen um you can be young and get really sick and potentially die from this disease so that's that's what i would like people to do um kelly um answer the same question how can we help how can we help you guys you guys are helping us so much uh, every single day how can we help you 
Well, I think that one of the things, in addition to all the CDC regulations, as far as washing your hands, social distancing, wearing your mask, get your vaccine. You know, the minute that you have that opportunity to get your vaccine, get it. It's the only way we're going to get enough herd immunity to stop this pandemic. You know, I, I think that we've, we will come out on the other side of this with incredible life lessons that will change the way that we live in society moving forward. But we got to get on the other end of this. You know, I think when patients, families come to the hospital, they have such anxiety, they're scared, we're not, you know, there's, there's um, restrictions on having visitors because we're trying to stop the spread of the virus. And it's just so hard. It's hard for everybody. It's hard for the caregivers. It's hard for patients and families. We need to do all these things so that we can get on the other side of this pandemic. And um, one thing is if people would just trust us when, we, when we're talking about things like the vaccine and the mask wearing and everything, you gotta trust science because it's, the way we've gotten out of other things, you know, other, you know, polio, and this is this is science behind this. And all, trust me, all of us wouldn't have gotten the vaccine um, if we didn't trust the science. And I, I, I do trust the science. I had I had my 85 year old mom get the vaccine yesterday, so it's um, something that people have to trust and have to do, uh, as like Kelly said, if we're going to get on the other side of this. I know your mom, and I'm happy to hear that she's got the vaccine. Well, I'm just going to end this segment by saying thank you. Tracy, as you know, somebody that I love and need very much in my life has been in the hospital now for almost 12 weeks, most of the time in St. Francis. And, you know, we can't visit. Uh, and so you guys, you're you're us, you know, you're the people. I'm going to start crying. Um, but thank you anyway for what you're doing for, for everybody. And thanks for joining us today. It's an honor. It's right. an honor, and I just want to say that you're constantly in my thoughts and prayers, Colin, and um, we know we'll do the best we can. All right. I will compose myself, and we will come back. Thank you. It's it is time to make the world a little Okay, we're back. I'm better. I'm not the most impartial journalist in the world on this show. Um, uh, we're going to talk now about you know, where do these people come from? You know, where do we get Tracy and Kelly? How do how do we have people? I mean, I don't really think I have it in me to do. I think I know I don't have it in me to do that kind of stuff. So where do they come from? Joining us now is Abigail Marsh, professor of psychology in the Department of Psychology in the Interdisciplinary Neuroscience Program, um, both at Georgetown University. And she also directs their lab on social and effective neuroscience. She's the author of The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Psychopaths, Altruists, and Everyone in Between, which is very much on point for what we're about to talk about. Uh, Abby Marsh, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. So I think this has to begin with your own story, your own story in which you personally encountered one of these altruists, uh, a person whose name you still don't know, as far as I know anyway. So uh, tell us that story. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it happened back in the 1990s when I was a teenager. I um, was home for the summer from college and driving back to my home in Tacoma, Washington, down the Interstate 5 freeway. Um, and as I was driving over a bridge coming back into town, uh, a very small dog ran out in front of my car. And I did the thing many people intuitively do if an animal runs in front of you, but don't do this, which is swerve. And in doing that, I sent my car fishtailing and then into a series of donuts across the freeway um, and ended up uh, stranded in the fast lane of the freeway. And then the engine of my car died and left me uh very, very close to death. Any one of the cars or semis that were roaring past me on this uh, bridge could have easily killed me. I had no phone because it was the 90s. And um, I, I just panicked. I There was nowhere to go. I had no idea what to do. And then out of nowhere, this uh, stranger, a man, appeared um, uh, next to the passenger side of my car, which was the side on the shoulder because my car was facing backwards. Uh, and he, you know, I just, I remember looking at him and, and thinking, where did this man come from? How could this be happening? And he just said, you look like you could use some help. And I said, yeah, yes, I could. And he said, can I get in your car? And so he, when I said he could, he ran around the car back through traffic to get into the passenger seat, figured out how to get my car working again. And then, um, drove us, you know, very carefully, because again, cars, trucks racing toward us, back to safety on the opposite side of the freeway. I'm, I was shaking. I was, you know, covered in sweat at this point. I was absolutely terrified. I mean, it took me days to really feel like I had gotten over it. And so he looked at me and he's like, you don't look so good. Do you, do you need me to follow you home to make sure you get home okay? And um, I said, no, 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 I'll be okay. I'll be okay. You know, I'm sort of in a daze. And he said, okay, you take care of yourself. And he got out of the car and drove off again down the freeway. And he, I don't know his name. I I don't think I said thank you. I will forever regret not being able to thank him properly for saving my life. So you wound up, I think, asking the same question that I'm asking about these nurses. Where does such a person come from? How does that person, how is that person different from maybe the rest of us or a lot of us? Um, one of the ways you decided to try to investigate this was kind of going 180 degrees, 180 degrees in the opposite direction and looking at, at psychopaths. So tell us uh, what you learned. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it doesn't seem intuitive, but it, it does sort of make sense, actually. So, of course, you know, I, I was dying to know what had caused this man to do what he did. You know, I owed my life to his actions and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and uh, at least when you you know read about heroes like this or see them depicted in movies or things, um, what seems to be the common thread is that that people like this must be fearless. They must just be impervious to fear. Um, but the research that I've been doing suggests that it's actually the very opposite that's true. Um, and the research I do looking at what makes people decide to take risks and make sacrifices to help other people, even strangers, emerged out of the research I started doing on people who are psychopathic. So this is people who are very callous, who have no remorse, no compassion for other people. And what's so interesting about them is that they really are pretty fearless. In fact, fearlessness seems to be one of the earliest signs of psychopathy in very young children. Um, and you know, it might seem like a really good thing to be fearless. It turns out it's not because you get into a lot of scrapes. 
Um, but the other thing that happens when you're relatively fearless is that you have trouble empathizing with other people's fear, right? If you don't mm -hmm. even understand what it means to be afraid, it doesn't really matter to you if other people are afraid. And so that's one of the reasons people who are psychopathic don't mind causing other people to feel fear. Um, and what we found about people who are really altruistic in the research we've been doing in my lab is that they look exactly the opposite of people who are psychopathic. They have sort of anti-psychopathic brains and personalities, which means that they are very sensitive to what it means to be afraid. Now, they can be, they can be very brave, and it's really important to distinguish between being brave, which means knowing that there's a risk, but knowing that there's something even more important that you have to do, and so you need to overcome your fear of the risk to do the thing that's more important. That's courage. That's virtue. Uh, whereas being fearless and, and being reckless, like someone who's psychopathic is not. And so because people who are very altruistic have a very high sensitivity to fear, um, they're very empathic when other people are afraid as well. And so they're motivated to help people who are afraid, just like they're motivated to respond um, to their own fear. So if if I if you were to ask me how I would envision this in terms of the the entirety of humankind, I, I, and I had to guess. I would say, well, if it's a 10-point continuum, then there's a bunch of psychopaths and they're all ones. And then there's a bunch of altruists and they're all tens. And then the rest of us all live in a pretty undifferentiated middle. Um, you know, you, I think you do think of this in terms of a continuum, but maybe not quite as stark as the one that I just sketched out. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It's absolutely a continuum. I would say everything uh, that you described is pretty on point, except I would say that the middle is not that undifferentiated. There's a big continuum in the middle. Just, I mean, if you think about, you know, almost any human feature, we vary a lot. Uh, you know, if height is a good example. I'm at the very bottom of the height continuum. I'm five feet tall. And then there's, you know, people who are seven feet tall. But then there's lots and lots of variation in the middle. And I think altruism and compassion are the same way. So is this all, you know, Freud said anatomy is destiny. Is this all just wired into us? I mean, how much choice do we have about what kind of person we're going to be? Well, that's such an interesting question. Um, and the answer is probably we, we don't have complete control over the kind of people that we are. There's some stuff that is wired in, but there's also a whole lot of plasticity as well. The, the best estimate we have, and it's it's pretty preliminary, so we, we definitely need more data, but the best estimate we have is that about half of the variation in caring and compassionate traits is due to genetic factors. And so kids do start out different when it comes to um, how much they seem to intrinsically care about other people. However, 50% leaves a lot of room for growth and for change. Um, and the evidence is pretty clear that things that we uh, that happen to us over the course of our lives, and maybe even more importantly, the things that we do over the course of our lives can make all of us more compassionate and more caring than we started out. You know, I, I also wonder if there's a, a meaningful distinction between, okay, so I don't really do anything heroically altruistic that I, that I can think of anyway. But, you know, like I give money to Doctors Without Borders and stuff because I, I know what they're doing. It's really important. And I know that they're very altruistic. They're, they are out there in the front lines uh, of just terrible, terrible situations. But I just sort of wonder, are, is, are those both parts of the same continuum? Here I am sitting in relative comfort, making a monthly donation to Doctors Without Borders. That's not the same thing, I don't think, as, you know, the guy who saved you on the highway. <laughs> it's not exactly the same thing, no, but but there are common threads, absolutely. I mean, you know, you could look at it another way, that, that in some ways it doesn't make any sort of rational sense. For, if you believe that all human motivation is intrinsically selfish, it's very hard to explain why you give money to Doctors Without Borders. Mm. Uh and there's lots of behaviors like that, even lower level forms of altruism, like, you know, stopping to help somebody who's lost or 
um, uh, volunteering for charity or giving money to a charity like Doctors Without Borders. Um, all of those behaviors do have a, a common thread, which is finding some sort of intrinsic value in other people's welfare, actually caring whether other people are doing better or worse. Um, and I, I do think people vary quite a bit in how much they're willing to take real risk to themselves uh, and make sacrifices for other people. But I do think all of these ways of helping other people are meaningful and they're all altruistic. So you just I want to go back to a phrase that you just used, because it's something that I was thinking about when reading about your research. You said it doesn't make any rational sense from a certain point of view. I'm assuming that's what the psychopaths think, right? That if they hear your story, they'll say, well, that doesn't make any rational sense, because like if that guy gets hit by a semi along with you, you know, well, what does that accomplish? That that to a psychopath, a lot of what we're talking about, selflessness, doing things which might ultimately disadvantage you in the course of helping another person or being a kidney donor, and there's just an inherent risk there, that they would say, well, that just it doesn't make sense to me. It's not that they're evil or wish harm on anybody, but they just don't see it. That's a really, really good point. Um, you know, it depends on who, which psychopath you're talking yes. about. I'm talking about the nice um, psychopaths. Yeah, it is. and many people who are psychopathic, um, some of whom actually are now my uh, collaborators. I just started a new psychopathy nonprofit aimed at, at disseminating information about psychopathy, and some adults with psychopathy are part of it, uh, and I really appreciate their contributions. Um, but you're right about that, that, that people who are psychopathic don't intrinsically value anybody else's welfare. And so to them, it does look really weird that anybody would make a big sacrifice or take a big risk to help somebody else at no benefit to themselves. It just seems like an odd thing to do. And, you know, this is one of the reasons that people who are very psychopathic are often very arrogant and narcissistic and think they're better than everybody else, because... Um, they, you know, they, they look around the world at other people just passing up opportunities to take advantage of other people and exploit other people. Uh, and they're like, why would you, you know, what, what kind of idiots are they that they're just, you know, passing up these opportunities to exploit people? And then they're, you know, going and wasting their own money and their own time to help other people, even though it won't help themselves. That's a really psychopathic way of thinking. Uh, and most of us, luckily, don't think that way. The, uh, on the other end, people who are extreme altruists, I think, often don't make sense to some of the people around them. Um, actually, we, I did a lot of uh, interviewing and reading years ago about people who had uh, near-death experiences, and a lot of them come back from the near-death experiences, and they have experienced this, this moment of total, unconditional, uh, divine love, they feel. And it's caused them uh, to love the people in their lives, but also love the family that they see broken down by the side of the road while they're taking the kids to the beach. they got to stop. they got to help these people. I, I was listening uh, last night to an interview on public radio about the whole question of vaccine testing and has it been tested uh, has, has the new vaccine been tested on, on pregnant women yet? And no. And the person who's being interviewed said, and that's really a shame, you know, that we need more information about what the vaccine does to, to women who are carrying a, a child. And I'm thinking, who's going to be in that vaccine study? So you're, like you're just saying it's a shame some pregnant woman didn't take an otherwise untested vaccine. But somehow or other, the world needs people who will make choices like that, right? 
Oh, it absolutely does. Um, you know, the the I, I'll be the first person to say that uh, volunteering to participate in any kind of scientific research is an altruistic thing, and we know that uh, from studies that people who participate in research are more altruistic than the average person already. And volunteering to participate in vaccine trials, and especially things like vaccine challenge trials, is particularly altruistic. We are, we we can all uh, owe people who participated in these trials in the past and who are doing it now a huge debt of gratitude. But, it, but these decisions don't exist in a vacuum. So say you're a 30-year-old woman, you're carrying a, a, a pregnancy, and you decide you're going to be in a vaccine trial, and your mother says, are you out of your You cannot possibly do that. Um, and, and I would imagine that that's often the reaction of loved ones and family members to people who are taking a fairly extreme uh, uh, and possibly self-sacrificing step towards or into the middle of altruism. Maybe you can say something about that. Yeah, this is one of the really interesting complexities of altruistic behavior is um, when somebody volunteers to make a sacrifice or take a risk to help somebody they don't even know, oftentimes it's the people close to them who are the most unhappy about it. So, for example, I study people who have given their own kidneys um, or a piece of their liver to strangers. Um, and the... Uh, you know, they're maybe they're more distant friends and think it's usually think it's a wonderful thing they're doing, although you'd be surprised how much variation there is. Mm. Um, but frequently, you know, for example, their mom is really unhappy about it. Their mom says, wait a minute, I don't care about this person. You know, who are they? I don't want you taking a risk to help somebody you've never met before. Uh, or then some, you know, that's, the, that's a pretty typical response. Sometimes you get an even less good response, which is a close family member saying, Hey, what are you doing? Giving your kidney away to somebody you never met? What if I need it one day? You should mm-hmm. save that kidney if you're so willing to get rid of it, just in case somebody, you know, that we know needs it someday. I, I actually know a family where that happened, where the father needed a kidney transplant and, uh, the daughter, uh, this is a family that had diabetes in it. And I think the daughter said, well, I'll give you my kidney. And, he, and the father said, no, that's for your brother. Um, and and so, but I think also, let me ask you one last question about this. I think there's another way in which, not just to family members, but to the rest of us, the rest of us average schlubs in the middle of the continuum, there's something a little unsettling, you know, about hearing about somebody else's um, act that is more selfless and altruistic than one is capable of, right? I mean, I think these people rattle us a little bit and make us nervous. I mean, I have not volunteered to give my kidney to anybody else, but I also know, I mean, one of our, our producers here got a kidney, you know, and, and I was overjoyed. But there's sort of a way in which, you know, I'm talking about a chasm that exists between my approval of kidney donation and my failure ever to even <laughs> contemplate it. Yeah, I mean, this is where this continuum comes back in, is the idea that, that, that we're, you know, people are not all the same in terms of their internal worlds. And it would be convenient for the philosophers and the ethicists if everybody had the same moral compass, but they just don't. Uh, people who are psychopathic just don't care about other people. It's not, you know, that they care deep down, and if we could just, you know, get them over their angst and their, you know, anxiety, they would care about other people. They really don't, and they're not going to. Um and, uh, and then other people really just value others' welfare more highly than average. And to that, to people who donate kidneys to strangers, almost everybody I've spoken to says that they just can't imagine not doing it. it that's not giving a kidney to a stranger who would die without it seems like the thing that needs explaining. Um, but to most people who sit in the middle of the continuum, you know, who do care about other people's welfare to some degree, but not to the degree that they would give a kidney to a stranger. It's just, it's almost impossible to imagine the kind of mind that would produce that behavior. 
And so what has happened in the past is that people, you know, just assume they must be crazy, right? Anybody who would decide to do this were crazy. And, and, and psychiatrists actually used to just assume this was true of people who wanted to donate kidneys to strangers, even a couple decades ago on uh, transplant professionals as well. Uh, but I think things are changing now and, and people are recognizing that, you know, different people do have different motivations. And for some people, this may be a completely rational decision. Well, in our next segment, we're going to meet one of those people uh, who uh, I believe is emphatically not crazy, but also yeah. uh, selfless enough to uh, give uh, a kidney to someone else, to a total stranger. Meanwhile, uh, you've been just great to talk to. Abigail Marsh, professor of psychology in the Department of Psychology and in the Interdisciplinary Neuroscience Program, both at Georgetown University, uh, the author of The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Psychopaths, Altruists, and Everyone in Between. We'll be back after this. All right. Uh, we are back. Uh, we are doing a show. Uh, well, this started out as a, the idea for the show would be about nurses. And then I think Betsy Kaplan, uh, a nurse herself, realized it's kind of a bigger topic than that. It's about the people who make these kinds uh, of decisions that, that a lot of us would not make. So first of all, I want to thank Betsy Kaplan. She is a senior producer for our show and the producer of this episode. I want to thank Kat Pastor. Uh, she's there in the studio being the technical producer, making it all happen, making it possible for uh, the rest of us to work from home. You know, I think you could probably call that an act of altruism uh, as well. And thanks to all of you uh, all for as well who are listening today. Well, we're going to finish our show with Lauren Herschel, uh, an anonymous kidney donor. She lives in Calgary, Alberta. Um, so Lauren, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And why don't you just give us kind of the thumbnail uh, version of your story? Sure. Um, so about 10 years ago, I guess actually a little less than that, 10 years ago, um, I started going through the process to become a living kidney donor. I did not know anybody who had kidney disease. I've never known anybody who's had kidney disease. Uh, but I just thought I would go down the path and see where it takes me. Um, and hopefully in the end, be able to help somebody by giving them a kidney. And so help us understand this a little bit better. You might have heard the previous segment where I was talking about uh, the gulf that exists between my tremendous approval uh, of what you just described and the fact that I've never done it uh, or never even really contemplated being a kidney donor. So I don't know. Can you talk a little about a little bit about the inner mechanics uh, of coming to that? Or is it just such a natural thing that, that there there isn't a way to describe it? Well, I will say it did always feel really natural to me. It just seemed like something I should be doing. Um, but I will also say that I have not always felt like I needed to give a kidney. Like it wasn't a lifelong dream or anything like that. Um, it just, I think sometimes our big decisions in life are made up of a lot of different experiences and decisions that we've made before them. And, um, you know, for me, when I was a teenager, my dad was diagnosed with um, what would eventually become terminal cancer. And I think it really gave me an appreciation for, you know, all those all those emotions and feelings uh, that people have when they're facing a critical illness. And, um, you know, obviously, with that being my father, that left a huge impression on me. Um, 
And then, you know, a little bit later in life, um, I learned that a high school friend had donated part of her liver lobe to her dad. And I had absolutely no idea that that was even possible. Uh, so that got me actually just looking into living donation, just more from a how does it work perspective, not I want to do this. Like it wasn't even on my radar to do it. Um, and then again, you know, fast forward another few years and, um, you know, something caught my eye on a TV show and it it just made me think, hey, I wonder if we do that here in Canada, because sometimes we're a little um, not behind, but we, we don't always have um, the robust programs that some of the medical hospitals in the States have. Um, so anyways, I you know thought I'll look into this. Um, and then that was really the first step on the journey. And it just kind of went from there. They do, as I understand it, have you take some kind of battery of tests. Uh, I mean, not simply a physical test for the health of your kidney, but tests so that they have some kind of assurance that you're doing this for what they would consider rational and reality grounded uh, reasons. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, what's that experience like? or How do you feel you're being examined in that situation? Well, um, all the way through the testing process, which in my case happened um, over a few months, um, you know, a couple days a month sort of thing, um, various different people from nurses to physicians to social workers are telling you, you can change your mind at any time. Are you sure about this? Do you have support? You know, tell me the risks, you know, even though I'd repeated the risks back to them, you know, probably about 150 times, you have to do a lot of that. So um, that th there's a lot of, you know, those kind of temperature checks along the way. Um, and then part of the evaluation is um, a, a sit down with a psychiatrist um, and they run through all kinds of different scenarios. How would you feel if this happened? How would you feel if that happened? And they have their, their typical um, mental health questions, you know, do you hear voices and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that's how they kicked it off. But, um, you know, in the end, they're there to evaluate that you've thought this through, um, that you have considered any risks, you've considered all the positive and negative outcomes that could happen. Um, and that, you know, you're in as good as a place as possible going into something like this. So did you waver at all? Was there ever a moment where you did have a doubt? Not really. I think I always trusted, um, you know, not blind trust. I asked a lot of questions, but I always trusted in the system that if it wasn't right for me medically, that they wouldn't let me do it. And that would be my sign that, you know, this isn't the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And I just kept going through each, you know, next series of tests and, and advancing forward. Um, and I think with each you know, segment of testing done and, you know, you, you kind of pass on and they, to the next level and they, they give you probably the more expensive tests. Um, I just wanted to do it more and more. It just seemed like a, just a natural fit for me. And it really felt like, you know, this is the thing I'm supposed to be doing right now. So no, I didn't really have any doubts. I think there was a, you know, a flickering moment right before they put me um, under anesthetic mm -hmm. where I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> but um, I, I think that's normal too. Um, you know, and then I woke up with one less kidney. So is it an irrevocably blind process? In other words, you'll never know who got your kidney and they will never know you? In my case, yes. Um, just based on the privacy laws and procedures that we have in my particular province. Um, you know, that being said, with social media and things like that, um, you know, it wouldn't be super far fetched to think that um, we, we, well, I think it would be easier for somebody to track me down than track 
for me to track them now because I know nothing about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas because I was the first anonymous donor to go through this uh, process in Calgary, um, there was some news coverage. So it's a little easy to, you know, it's easier for people to figure out who I am versus the other way around. Last question, because we have been talking about people who are altruists, people who make uh, choices like this, uh, I understand that you consider yourself to be uh, an optimist. Just briefly say something about that and how it ties into this. Um, I don't know. I I think, you know, even as a really small kid, I I always had the ability to find the best in bad situations. I I typically see the best in people. Um, You know, I want to believe that people have the best intentions and that doesn't make me naive. I I just think I always look for the good. And when you can find the good, you can typically solve most problems. All right. So we're going to stop there. But Lauren Herschel, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and and telling your story. Uh, And thanks to all the other people who listened. And and I will say, uh, oh, by the way, um, Abby, our previous guest, sort of said the same thing, that optimism is a very frequent, uh, persistent trait uh, among uh, among altruists, uh, Abby Marsh. Um, I also want to just quickly say, uh, speaking of people who care about other people, uh, I want to thank Patty, who messaged me, I, I don't know Patty, um, who messaged me to say that she um, pulled her car over uh, and said a little prayer for me and my family when she heard me talking earlier. So uh, just, you know, here in real time on the show, we, we have acts of selfless kindness. Uh, thanks very much for that, Patty. And thanks to everybody who listened here today. And, and yes, once again, Thank you. Nurses, certified nursing assistants, other kinds of hospital workers. My mother worked at the front desk uh, of the Hartford Hospital ER for like decades. Uh, Thanks to all of you. I mean, you really do put it all on the line. And there will be ticker tape parades uh, when this pandemic is over for all of you. And I will be there on the sidewalk, uh, noisemaker in hand, cheering for you as well. So, And thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow.